This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. What a beautiful audience all over the world. I appreciate the affirmations, the guest suggestions, the notes you share about your life and perhaps how a guest has touched your heart or the show. Thank you. Thanks to the Patreons who support the show. And speaking of guest suggestions, I bet at least a hundred of you have written in over the last couple of years and said, why don't you have this beautiful soul on the show? And I would always write back and say, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I doubt he'd do it, but yes, yes. Uh, So today, courtesy of my new friend, Chris Ryan, and his kindness, he has agreed to come on. If you read his masterpiece, Humankind, you know what kind of a great voice of truth he is. He also speaks truth to power, as we saw in Davos. What an honor to welcome to the family, really one of the great voices on the planet today, Mr. Rucker Bregman. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. It's great to be with you. Rucker, I, I always ask my guests now, uh, over the last year, how have you and your wife done with COVID? How has it affected you personally? Hopefully you haven't lost anyone. And has it changed you in, it, in any way? It's a good question. I, I haven't lost, lost any of my loved ones. So I'm, I'm obviously very grateful for that. Um, and uh, as a writer, I also can't say I'm, I've been one of the main victims. Uh, I was about to go on a huge international book tour uh, with humankind, you know, doing lots of events with readers and interviews, etc. And now suddenly everything was virtual, of course. And part of me, I must admit, really liked it because I'm not a huge fan of traveling. Um, but what I do enjoy very, very much, and actually what I need as a writer as well, is contact with readers. Um, and I've really missed that. And I'm not really sure what the impact is, is of that is going to be, you know? I, I mean, uh, talking to readers, is a, I always see it as a long-term investment, right? If you stop doing it for a month uh, or you stop doing it for a while, you won't notice immediately. But if you, yeah, if you stop doing it for a while, uh, then you'll start to uh, see the effects of it in three or four years, or, or people will see it in the next book that it's not as original. Um, so, um I'm really looking forward to, you know, doing proper events again and talking to readers. I love talking to the people that read my stuff or listen to the podcast. Uh, some people tease me because I literally respond to everybody. That's a very good thing to do. I try to do so as well. It's just that the volume is is simply too high. Um, but, you know, Noam Chomsky, uh, the famous linguist and activist, um, there are so many people who have a, an anecdote of emailing Noam Chomsky and to their total surprise, getting a thoughtful reply, you know, in return, people from around the globe. Now, my suspicion is that there's not one Noam Chomsky. There must be around 100, maybe 200. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, I guess uh, he's so fantastic is that he doesn't dis- make a distinction according to class or, you know, income or your credibility as a thinker or academic or whatever, he just reads your email and then thinks, huh, that's interesting or yes or no. So I, I, I try to see that as an example. It's just that, you know, the, the volume is often, uh, it's just too much. <laughs> and uh, you also want to do some other things in your life. 
Well, you, you're much more successful, so you do a higher volume. Paul McCartney can't respond to all his either. It's funny about Noam Chomsky. I have a story. I called up his office like two or three years ago to see if he'd come on the show. And his secretary answered, she couldn't have been nicer. She patched me through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there must be, I'm thinking now you got me thinking there's like a Westworld thing where there's like hundreds of them, like in a giant call center in the Philippines or something, Noam Chomsky's. <laughs> but anyway, I talked to him for a couple minutes. He wanted to know about the show. And part of me, I'm, I'm usually good on my feet and I could talk. I literally was stunned into like a silence. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a show about uh, what matters most. Uh, uh, I was like embarrassed. But anyway, he, he considered it and he said, he's just real busy now, but keep checking back. And literally I called a couple more times and he was either out or he's working on something, but I didn't want to be a pest. I idolize the guy. The guy's amazing. But the first time when I went patched through, I was completely caught off guard. Yeah. yeah. I thought they were putting me on, but it was really him. Yeah. That's very weird. That's like you're calling to white house and suddenly you have Joe Biden on the phone, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. What can I do for you, buddy? That's a lot of malarkey, if you ask me. And all of a sudden, it's like, are we taping this? Get five minutes. You know? <laughs> do you think on a larger scale, um, did you see any bigger message in COVID, uh, this beautiful microorganism that basically, uh, while the world for years said we can't slow down, you know, progress and you got to fly everywhere and nothing stops the machine. This infinitesimally small and really beautiful, if you look at it under an electron microscope, said, hold my beer and basically put the world on hold and pause and is still affecting all of us. I saw it. And maybe that's just the way I look at life. I saw a message in this that it was a chance for us to rethink our relationship to the earth, to each other, to our resources and to ourselves. Did you get any of that out of it or was it just an organism? Well, look, at, at first I was reluctant especially in the first couple of months, it just seemed wrong to immediately start proclaiming that this, you know, proved what I've always been thinking, that indeed we need to say end the era of neoliberalism and we need to think about seemingly radical ideas such as ending poverty and, you know, really tackling climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Because basically everyone was doing that, right? Everyone's sort of using the crisis and the pandemic to say, look, this is this proves what I always believed to be the case. Um, but then, you know, as time went by, you clearly did see, you know, a substantial shift. I thought one very telling moment was at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was in April last year, when the Financial Times, which is not exactly a left-wing newspaper, but, you know, the newspaper of the elites, the people who go to Davos, they read the Financial Times, um, but they were writing in an editorial. It was basically the view of, you know, the senior editors that, in their words, we need to reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years and think about three things. One, higher taxes on the rich. Two, a basic income for everyone. And three, a more ambitious sort of activist role for the state in combating the great threats and challenges of our times, such as climate change and pandemics. Now. That is, um, that was, when I was reading it, I was thinking, ah, oh, this is something that historians are going to quote, you know? So if you re read a history book 30 years from now, they'll use this because it's just, a, I don't know, it was the re a really good sign of the times that even they are saying it, right? 
Um, so yes, I do believe that we're that we are moving into a new era, and it's been astonishing to see um, that some of the ideas that I was really excited about just seven, eight years ago when I published one of my my first books, uh, Utopia for Realists, that these ideas are now moving into the mainstream, and it's especially clear with the idea of a guaranteed basic income uh, to eradicate poverty. That was really eight years ago when I when I. Uh, talked about that my audience consisted of anarchists with long hair you know a little bit smelly maybe uh but that was my audience and now it's it's, it's an idea that's being considered uh, by politicians and policymakers around the globe in the us you really have a wave of basic income experiments going on a lot of mayors really interested in the idea so um yes uh, that that really makes me hopeful and and yeah that that's why i think that this is not just a crisis, but it, it's going to be a turning point. We had Andrew Yang on the show a few times, and I had him on very early on when he was just not even on the radar. And he was talking about UBI, universal basic income. And a lot of people thought of him as it was a crackpot gimmick. And then by the end of the campaign, it was pretty much in the mainstream. And I think you're referring to like Michael Tubbs, who's supposed to come on the show, the mayor for uh, Stockton in California. His wife was on. She wrote a great book um, and he's coming on and his experiment has been a huge success. I think that that's the way of the future. And I think not just income, but if, if we could just have universal basic income, health care, food, shelter and education and like planting a vineyard, a forest or, or even a farm field for food doesn't happen overnight. But you're sowing the seeds for better crops and those crops would be better human beings and thus those units would create i would hope higher conscious civilizations that function better is isn't that basically a thesis that would work yeah absolutely so it's it's really the, all, all those things so indeed universal health care high quality public education and a guaranteed basic income for everyone a floor that everyone can stand on not a privilege but a right just because you exist you're a human being and that's enough reason now that's that's why you deserve it now parts of that agenda already exist in the world right so in places like the netherlands where i'm from or canada or the uk universal healthcare is seen as you know uh, a no-brainer even the conservatives even the tories in in the uk wouldn't dream of suggesting that they uh, to to abolish the nhs for example the national health service they they wouldn't dare to do that so once you have it it's very difficult to get rid of it uh, once you've realized a utopia, people don't see it as utopia anymore. They say, oh, it's just common sense. Obviously, you have universal health care. You know, the debate we have in the Netherlands is, is not about whether we should have it, yes or no. It's about uh, how much more should we spend on it next year? That's the question. So <laughs> it's, already, it's already decided that we're going to spend more on, health, on public health care next year. But the question is, is it going to be like 2% more or 3% more or 4% more? And that's sort of where... The, the political parties from the right to the left uh, differ, right? Um, but the fact itself that we have healthcare, accessible healthcare for everyone, wh whether you're homeless or whether you're a multimillionaire, doesn't matter, right? Everyone gets it. Um, so I, that's, that process has always fascinated me, is that at first, these ideas are dismissed as impossible, unreasonable, unrealistic, then people start talking about it, such as Andrew Yang a couple of years ago. Um, and people say, oh, that's a crazy crackpot, right? Oh, what an idiot. 
but then they, uh, you know, gather some momentum, they build a movement. Um, suddenly the idea that was at first radical becomes sort of, well, more like daring or interesting. People started experimenting with it. Then you have a breakthrough that some parts, uh, maybe in the US or, or elsewhere in the world, really start implementing it. And then it becomes more mainstream. And when it has become more mainstream, people are like, well, why didn't we always do that? <laughs> and uh, well, surely it must have always been the case, right? And we can't remember the time when uh, it was this crazy utopian idea. I'm also flashing on the idea of uh, my great grandmothers couldn't vote. My grandmother marched in New York and got water hose so she could vote. Children working in slave type conditions in factories, right? That's all within the last hundred years. And now we look back supposedly in horror and say, wow, that's horrible. I know that a lot of people and not a lot, but certain people would go back to that. Are you sort of, do you look on, I've spent a lot of time in Europe and I have dreams of living there uh, maybe again. Don't you look on with the sort of bewildered horror at the way the United States approaches so much of what the world takes for granted, like for-profit healthcare and, and how little we invest both in our societies, our infrastructure, and most importantly, our people? that it is a sort of Lord of the Flies sort of structure here, which uh, we've seen what that can do. It gives rise to fascism and child poverty and hunger. Mm -hmm. How do you see it from across the pond? Because so much of what you're used to would be an anathema here. Yeah, yeah. By speaking to a lot of Americans, I have learned not to make simplistic generalizations, right? And to appreciate the massive differences between the states and, and all the different regions, et cetera. Um, which is, uh, I mean, we Europeans are often guilty of making simplistic generalizations, just as Americans do about Europe, right? I've been introduced as the Danish historian so many times, I can't, I, I can't remember just, just how I've had it. But now Denmark is it actually a different country than the Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> Copenhagen is the capital of the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geography yeah, exactly. is not our strong suit on this. But uh, yeah, but yeah, in some respects, it is weird. You know, the, the United States is the only country in the rich world without, you know, universal health care for everyone. And then people said of, of Bernie Sanders that Medicare for all was a radical idea or something like that. And that sounds just completely silly from, you know, the other side of the ocean. It's, it's really, really silly because, yeah, something like Medicare for all is, is it's, it's, it works. <laughs> It works everywhere, right? And it's actually much cheaper than the than the American for-profit system. Um, it's yeah, it's really a win-win um, system where you get cheaper healthcare of a higher quality for everyone. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Um, so yes, that's I, I sometimes go on American media on CNN or something like that, and then that's the that's what I always repeat is like, look, this is not radical. This is just very old-fashioned you know, boring social democratic ideology. We've had it for decades in Europe. Um, you know, uh, it's not perfect, but I would, I would say it's, uh, it's, it's part of what we call civilization. And you said a, a cool phrase there very quickly in passing. I always try to tell people social democracy, not socialism. When people here try to point towards uh, Venezuela or Bolivia, I say, why, uh, why do you do that? Why don't we look at Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, Germany system? Well, no system is perfect. Let's look at real outcomes, things we can measure. And why don't we 
basically flat out steal the best ideas globally from either Taiwan, Japan, who's doing this best and let's borrow it and implement it. Why not be advanced monkeys, the hundred monkey theory? You know, we don't need a message in a bottle anymore. We can Zoom call and figure it out. I can't agree more. There's actually a political party now in Europe that's called Volt, and they are participating both in national and in European elections, uh, so in multiple countries. And they've, they've, they have a really nice idea about their uh, political program. So what they say is, we take the best ideas from all the different European countries, and we just want to scale them up. So we look at Ireland, and we see their participatory democracy experiments, and we think that's great, and we should experiment with it more. We look at Portugal, and we see you know, how the liberalization of uh, you know, the production and, and uh, you know, buying and selling of drugs has you know, been enormously successful, um, much fewer overdoses and all that kind of stuff. Um, we look at, uh, I don't know, Denmark and their energy policy and how Denmark is leading the world when it comes to innovating in windmills. And we look at Germany and we look at what Germany has done for solar energy, right? Just to look at the specific strengths of every country. Oh, Finland, by the way, the educational system of Finland is really fantastic. Um, yeah, just look around the world and, and see what the best practices are and, and learn from each other. Um, I really like that. Uh, we don't do it that much though because we tend to idolize idolize our own countries and say oh we are so special we are so unique well actually maybe not yeah and don't look up by the way the stars don't look at the stars if you want to feel significant <laughs> yeah 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 oh and one other thing by the way is this this is also strange from the european perspective indeed that when when i go in u.s media it's always about capitalism versus socialism or the market versus the state Right. And that feels to me like, come on, we don't live in the era of the Cold War anymore. Right. The Berlin Wall is down. The, the Cold War has ended. Um, it's also not the 1990s anymore when we all believe that we were at the end of history or something like that. And that all that was left was liberal capitalism or something like that. No, uh, I mean, there are there are real differences within a um you know, a, a social democratic state, right? And and there are differences between uh, rich countries, and you can just you can study those differences. Uh, but indeed, it's so boring when people say, "Oh, it sounds like communism." That's like Venezuela. And, uh, whenever people say that, I just I I immediately block them on Twitter because they're I don't know I don't see that as as a sincere response or in any way. That'd be like trying to say compare anything now to like 17th century Cuba or whatever. It's a it's a red herring, a straw man. Yeah, yeah. You're a natural optimist and you're open. I am too. But I'm, I'm, I struggle with this paradox. Our, I, know, I believe for sure our mindset, both individually and collectively, determines the outcome. If you're hopeful and optimistic, you're much more likely to succeed and survive and do all this kind of stuff. But Rucker, given this current set of facts that appears before me on a daily basis, because I happen to interview a lot of the famous climate scientists, it doesn't portend well for our collective future. In fact, it leans more towards our collective demise, a great extinction, a great correction. How do you balance the two? Because one of your 10 principles is to be realistic. Well, let me first say that I prefer the word hope over optimism. Uh, for me, optimism uh, sounds like complacency. Right? It's, it's a, I, I associate it with some of the books written by Steven Pinker, where he says, look, Extreme poverty has gone down. Child mortality has gone down. We live in the most peaceful of all eras, right? Um, 
And I know that, I mean, often in practice is, is more nuanced, but uh, the impression you often get when you, when you read the work is just shut up and be happy, right? <laughs> right? And um, um, yeah, it can make you lazy. And I've, I see that. Uh, if you go to a place like Davos, you know, the rich people love to hear that. They love to hear that neoliberalism has been a success. And indeed, extreme poverty has gone down by so much. And uh, we'll tackle climate change as well. Um, it, uh, it's not realistic, I think. Because indeed, you're absolutely right. If you look at some of the challenges of our time, especially global warming, I mean, what we've got to do is unprecedented. It really is. Never before in peacetime, we've achieved such a complete mobilization and transformation of the whole economy and our society as, uh, as to what is necessary right, right now. Um, so, um, yeah. On, on the one hand, um, I'm I'm hopeful, and hope is a little bit different. I, I would say from optimism, hope is about the possibility of change, and it impels you to act. It's not about complacency. It basically says, "Come on and do something." If you're really hopeful, um, and I do think there are good reasons to be hopeful, even even uh, uh, the some of the signs are are really really dark, right? So one of the reasons, for example, is that again, if you zoom out a little bit. And compared to uh, where we're now to, say, five or 10 years ago, we have made tremendous progress. If you would have told me five years ago that someone like Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, 16-year-old Swedish girl at the time, would, would launch the biggest climate justice movement in the world, I probably wouldn't have believed it, right? Uh, and also in terms of um, policymaking, um, uh, I'm not an expert on the uh, on the American situation, even though it does seem to be an improvement that we have Joe Biden in the White House now. Um, but uh, on a European level, we're re we're really taking big steps now. Um, there's something uh, it's called the the Green Deal. That's the problem with Europeans, right? We never have our own charismatic language, so we steal that from from the Americans because we we're really bad at telling stories. There was actually this moment when. Uh, Guy Verhofstadt, he was, uh, or Guy Verhofstadt, I should say, he's like a an influential Belgian politician, and he was giving a speech in a nearly empty European Parliament and saying something about, you know, we should aim for the moon, shoot for the moon, or something like that. And he was quoting Kennedy, and it was just ridiculous. People were having a big laugh on social media, like, come on, don't try to be charismatic when you're not, right? Um, but then if you look at what we're actually doing, right? So in terms of laws and procedures and, you know, the, the, just the amount of money that's going into innovation and also, you know, the very concrete reductions in emissions. Uh, yeah, to be honest, in many respects, Europe is light years ahead of the US. Uh, so we're not really good at, at giving speeches, but you know, we're a little bit better at sometimes actually doing something. Um, and uh, that's, 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 reason, uh, that's one reason, at least, to be hopeful. It's just that we're on such an unforgiving timeline, right? There's, there's just, uh, uh, yeah, there's a little time left. Someone who's well-known, I was corresponding with yesterday or two days ago, and they said, well, it's going to take about 100 years to change some sociological aspect. It was around racism and all these things, but I didn't have the heart to write back, but we have a 10-year window mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the climate. And I don't think we'll be completely wiped away. Just species come and go, corrections, natural law, universal natural law trumps everything else, no pun intended with the words. 
And it's funny, you said the word hope, which I always feel like the word hope and hope itself is a very dangerous idea. Hope is dangerous. And people always go, what do you mean? Because hope, especially among the masses, creates possibilities and possibilities lead to change and sometimes massive changes like the Berlin Wall coming down or maybe universal health care or who knows what else where fear is a closed system, a closed box and keeps people's eyes down and that makes them more easily manipulated and repressed. We see it lower cortex type behavior, the benchmark of anything Murdoch does in that whole empire. Do you, do you see it that way too? That hope is a dangerous idea? I think that's brilliant. I think that's, that's a really smart remark. You know, that actually we had the idea of, um, uh, for, the, for the title of my book in Dutch, one of the first ideas we had was calling it the most dangerous idea in the world. Most people are pretty decent. Right? Because hope is subversive. Um, there's a reason why throughout history, those who've advocated a more hopeful view of humanity, who have said that we have evolved to connect, to cooperate and to work together, that very often they've been persecuted. If you just look at the history of anarchism, for example, I mean, anarchism is, I would say, pretty much the only uh, modern political ideology that really believes people deep down are decent. Um, and well, we know what happened to the anarchists, right? Uh, if you read um, uh, Kropotkin, for example, do you know him? I know of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is sort of for listeners who don't know him, he was a Russian prince uh, in the 19th century. Very fascinating biography. So at first he was born into nobility, but then, um, yeah, started educating himself and um, at first became an activist. Uh, and all, actually also believed in violence, but then, but then really changed. And what was fascinating was that he did um, some path-breaking studies in evolutionary theory. So um, obviously he read the work of Charles Darwin and, and was, uh, was really taken by it. But he said, well, there's not, Darwin doesn't give enough attention to what we also see in nature, which is cooperation, cooperation between animals in order to survive. So he went to Siberia, Kropotkin, and there he saw that so many animals were not fighting each other, but they, they were fighting together against, you know, the cold, against the very tough circumstances, and they needed each other in order to survive. Uh, and Kropotkin was one of the first scientists to recognize that. And I think it was very much also connected to his political philosophy of anarchism. He was very much against the Tsar and against the hierarchy in Russia. And um, yeah, he uh, because he believed in, in sort of basic human decency, he, he always was on the run, basically, for the Russian Secret Service. Uh, there was one point when he was actually in prison, but um, he managed to escape with the help, obviously, of a lot of his friends, which only confirmed his worldview that you need your friends. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an old idea, but it's, it's incredibly subversive because throughout history, rulers have known that they need cynicism. Right. Cynicism is the greatest gift that you can give to those at the top. Because if people cannot be trusted, if everything is pointless anyway, well, then they can just keep doing what they're doing. Right? It really, really helps them. So uh, I, I absolutely agree. Hope is subversive. If people are basically good, and I agree that they are, or else we would have never made it out of the jungles. If people are basically good, 
you would have to redefine every one of our systems. And then you don't need a hierarchy. You don't need a Leviathan. You don't need a corporate elite. You don't need massive police budgets. You don't need trillions of dollars spent on the armed forces. It would, that simple shift would change every single thing. Everything starts with your view of human nature, what you assume in other people. At the beginning of the, my book, I, I try to explain that there are two uh, sorts of ideas. So there are ideas that are just true or not true, right? Um, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius or uh, Kennedy was shot, you know, what was it in 1963? It, if you stop believing it, it doesn't make it any less true, right? It's just some things are just facts. And uh, yeah, sometimes reality... I recently read a definition of reality and someone said, well, reality is the thing that's still there, even when you stop believing in it, <laughs> right? Yeah, like gravity. Yeah, exactly. But then there are other ideas that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We see this a lot in economics. If you believe or if people start to believe that a bank goes bust, then you can be pretty sure that it will happen because people will withdraw their, their money and you know the, 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 the bank goes bankrupt. Um, this is this is also true, I think, for our view of human nature. Uh, partly, it's a scientific discussion we're having about you know what is human nature really like. You know what has been uh, what have been the driving factors in our evolution as a species. But it's also what we believe can become true just because we believe it. If we believe that people are fundamentally selfish that our civilization is just a thin veneer, just a thin layer, and that below that lies raw human nature, right? That we're just evil and selfish or, or monstrous. Um, then what kind of society are you going to build? Well, obviously, it's going to be a really hierarchical society with very strict schools, you know, preferably boarding schools, you know, where kids can't leave and, you know, they, uh, you have a very strict curriculum and a, and a strict hierarchy. Um, same is true for the workplace. If you don't trust your employees, well, what do you need? You need, again, hierarchy, bureaucracies, uh, cameras everywhere. And what kind of behavior is that going to uh, elicit you know, in people? What, what, what's what's going to happen? Well, you're probably going to create the kind of people that, you, that your theory presupposes already exist, right? Um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And indeed, the second half of my book is all about what if we change our view? You know, what kind of world could we build? How, what would our schools look like? What would our organizations look like? Our workplace, even our prisons? How would we do democracy? All of those things. It would have, I think, massive implications for everything we do because, yeah, so much just basically starts with how you look at other people. How do we get there, Rutger? Huh. <laughs> it's a good question. In a way, we're already getting there. The reason I wanted to write this book well, actually, two reasons. In the first place, I started to notice that there was a scientific shift happening. So many scientists from so many different disciplines moving from a quite cynical view of human nature to a more hopeful view. And because all these experts are incredibly specialized, right? They know everything about their tiny little part of the puzzle. Um, they often don't notice what's going on in the field next to theirs. So I, I basically wanted to connect the dots and show that something bigger was going on. Now, the same is true in sort of in, in society in general and in the public domain. When I started to look for it, I noticed that there were so many people, you know, from around the globe who already had uh, 
adopted this new view of human nature and were implementing it in different ways. So I met a guy who started a really successful healthcare organization in the Netherlands now with 15,000 employees based on the idea that most people are, are just decent, that you can trust them and therefore you don't need any managers at all. So it's a company without managers and it's one of the most successful healthcare organizations in the Netherlands. Then I also met you know, other people like a, um, someone who had started launched a new school based on the principle. I looked at the Norwegian criminal justice system that also seemed to be based on the same view of human nature. It's just that all these people, they didn't realize that they're part of something bigger, right? Of a, of a movement of people who just look at humanity in a different way. And the only thing that I try to do in this book is to connect the dots, show that something bigger is going on. And yeah, therefore, in that way, I hope to inspire other people and, and basically say to them, uh, you're not alone, right? There are a lot of other people thinking about this and um, they are implementing their view of human nature in this way. And um, it could be fascinating to see what it could mean for you you know, in your daily life, in your work, for the organizations that you're a part of. That's beautiful. Do you come at the world as a sort of a holistic organism? Is humanity, though it looks separate, if you go on a quantum level, everything's connected. You see it all as this one energy thing. I'm looking at it from 20,000 feet now or under a microscope, whatever you want to say, or through different infrared lenses. Do you see it all as one beautiful organism or do you do you adhere more to a newtonian model that we're just these separate units of biology how do you come to it there was a time when i was around 17 18 years old um when i was really struggling with the you know the big questions of life is there is there is there meaning to any of this is there life after death should i believe in god all of those things now you should know my father is uh a Protestant uh, preacher. So went to church every Sunday. And um, yeah, so obviously was brought up in a Christian household and in that way also uh, had to reflect on all these questions. Um, so I guess I was 18 or 19 years old when I finally decided that I didn't believe any of it or that I, the better way to say it is that I couldn't believe any of it. I wanted to, but I just couldn't because it seemed to me that you know, there was just so much evidence from science. And especially the first time that I really understood evolutionary theory it was a little bit of a depressing moment, to be honest. Um, um, Charles Darwin wrote to a friend that publishing his theory was like confessing a murder. Um, and yeah, I must admit it had the same impact on me because I, I, I more took the perspective of... Um, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene, who is also, you know, obviously one of the famous new atheists. I, I, I really liked his book, The God Delusion at the time. Um, so, yeah, it seemed to me that as, as the universe has had lost some of its magic. Um, but as I became older, I've really changed, to be honest. I became less and less interested in the question, is this true or is that true? Does God exist? Is there life after death? Um, I didn't feel the need to start preaching at people when they started, you know, talking about their uh, belief in the afterlife, right? I was just like, oh, that's interesting. You believe in that? What does it mean for you? You know, what does it mean in your daily life? Um, um, and I'm more interested in what people do with certain ideas, right? You judge it, uh, a tree by its fruits. Uh, is that an expression in English? Uh, I hope so. 
And actually, Jesus said, you'll know them by his followers who believed in what his message was. You'll know them by their deeds. Yeah, exactly. Not by their beliefs. Exactly. Or by their uh, bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. So beliefs are free and deeds are expensive. And and I, I really try to focus on deeds. So at the time, there were all these books published. I think at some point, probably Christopher Hitchens had a book with a subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. I was like, come on, man, you, you got to meet my parents. They're pretty wonderful. Um, and, and they really find a lot of support in the religion. And actually, it helps them to be better human beings and uh, help, uh, help other people. Um, and then uh, as I was working on this book and started looking into actually the new evidence that's coming in from evolutionary anthropology, it is just so interesting to see that it actually very much connects to this holistic view of life, basically. Um, so biologists now literally talk about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But also if you go deeper, you know, uh, and look at biology, you see so much, how do you say that synergy and synthesis and, um, cooperation basically in nature that seems to be much uh, the, very, very often to be the norm not competition but actually working together um what does that mean you know on a metaphysical level is there sort of like one big consciousness uh i have no clue but i mean it's a cliche as you become older you know less if you would have asked me 10 years ago is there life after death i would have said definitely not or most well i'm 99.9 percent .9 certain not if you would ask me now, I would say, well, if you die, it's like um, it's like your your a little flow of water that that ends up in the river, right? I, I would pr probably phrase it like that. Like your specific antenna of consciousness is 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 gone, but that doesn't mean everything is gone. Um, I have no idea what it means, by the way. It sounds just. It just sounds good to me. <laughs> and I'm, 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 yeah, as I said, I'm just on a more, I'm, I'm just less interested, to be honest, now in those questions. Well, I got goosebumps when you said that, because I feel that's a great, accurate metaphor. And while I've never liked religion, which comes from the mind and men generally, and spirituality, which to me is the reverence for all there is, and the mystery, which means you never figure it out, for the word phenomenon, which means it's a, who knows? I'm in awe of the infinite intelligence that is surrounds me 24 seven, that is within me, a trillion cells. I look at stars and black holes and galaxies through the Hubble telescope, since we live in interesting times and, and Aspen groves that communicate underground, even though they look separate above ground, they have this root system, the world's largest organism. And that's just a fraction of what we, we know, a fraction of a fraction. There's so much mystery, I'm humbled. And I, like you, knew so much before, and now I cringe at my certainty. <laughs> I try not to tell anyone anything. Now people want my advice yeah, before yeah. I would give it even when it wasn't asked. It's completely flipped. I like the idea of asking more questions. I love the idea of this show for the listening. I would rather not say much. You get what I'm saying, right? There's one, one thing nagging me, though, is that... Doubt is obviously wonderful, right? And intellectual honesty is, is very, very important. Um, but sometimes doubt can also be an excuse. I mean, there's a reason why the tobacco industry said doubt is our product. We want people to doubt the science. 
And that's why they kept saying, even when the evidence was very, very clear, right, that smoking kills, they kept saying, we need to do more research. We're still not certain. More research is needed. Um, so doubt can sometimes also be an, an excuse, right, not to actually do something. Um, so that's, for, for me, when I think about what my atheism means, it's um, what, I, the, the, what I reject is, is this notion that everything will be all right in the end, right? That there's karma or some kind of spiritual force that will make sure that the people who suffer now or the animals who suffer now will be rewarded in some kind of afterlife, right? That there's some principle of justice. I just don't believe that. There is no cosmic justice. And therefore, it's up to us. You know, it, that, that means we got to do it. If there is to be justice in this world, it has to become, uh, has to come from us, basically. Um, and uh, I guess that's that's where I where I differ from some of my religious friends, who still you know feel some comfort when the, you know when it's like yes, it's terrible and the poverty is terrible and the you know the slavery that still exists in the world is terrible and factory farming is terrible, but you know they find some solace knowing that. Um, yes, there's some principle, some some cosmic force that will make sure that things will be all right in the end. And if you just don't believe that, then yes, it is true that the universe becomes a little bit colder, but it also makes you much more impatient. And it has made me much more of an activist uh, of, 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 of did you realize you've got to do something because if people don't do it, no one's going to do it. I would agree with that. And that's a poor man's anthropomorphic projection that somehow there'll be like this higher court someday with the old white haired man or maybe a panel or maybe a few angels on it. But using your analogy, beautiful metaphor with the water, if water returns to water, which I believe, and yet the molecule is still sovereign, yet being part of the great infinite sea, which is a paradox, right? How can I be both this and that? How can the wave be part of the ocean? Well, it is. And yet it's still individuated sort of for a while. There is no need for justice or whatever. It's just energy changing costumes, right? That's like if you and I were trying to have a trial because somebody killed somebody in a movie and that we wanted to punish the character in the movie. And so we were trying to find the actor, you know, because he killed 10 people in a movie. That said, when we're in the movie, linear life, you better move off the railroad tracks or the train will run you over in the movie. And if you don't get involved and feed people, they'll die of hunger. You have to take action in this context. If you use the higher realm to bypass this realm or as a cop-out or hope that someday something will happen in some future realm, that defeats the purpose, I feel like, of living here fully and being completely embodied based on theories and beliefs. So I, I agree with you. You better do it here. Chop wood and carry water or else what's the point of being incarnated? We don't know what's going to happen next, but we're all headed there anyway. And we all came from somewhere and we'll go back or we won't. But we're here now. How do we improve the quality of others? And I think that's where the beautiful word compassion is so important uh, because that takes us beyond our own selfish interests. And we're lucky we're a biped that has the ability for compassion. Not all. Some are sociopathic, perhaps because of trauma or whatever, but we can invoke compassion and maybe if we have 10 loaves of bread, we can only eat one or two anyway, or we get sick, 
maybe we can share the bread so that everybody can at least live and maybe make our life in the world a better place. It sounds naive, but it would, it actually works. It's a better way. Hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's, that's one of the, one of the central points also that I tried to get across, especially in the, one of the last chapters of humankind is, um, trusting other people are making empathy and compassion central in your life it's actually a better way of living your life so it's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's in a way selfish yeah there's this there's this anecdote of thomas hobbes the british philosopher right who is one of the main advocates of what i call veneer theory you know veneer theory this notion that our civilization is only a thin veneer a thin layer and that below that lies raw selfish human nature now Thomas Hobbes was walking through uh, London with a friend and he gave a little bit of money to a beggar who was on the side of the road. And then the friend said, huh, what are you doing? You just read a book in which you say everyone is selfish. Why then do you give money to, to you know, that very poor man? And Thomas Hobbes said, well, it gives me a good feeling. So it's still selfish. And um I don't know. It's it, I, I I like the anecdote because it just shows you that cynicism is a theory of everything, right? It always works. You can always, in some way, say, okay, true altruism doesn't exist because people benefit in some way. You know, in some way, it's still selfish. But then I think, well, luckily we live in a world where people feel good when they do good, because what kind of world would it be when every time you give a little bit of money to, you know? A beggar or someone who's homeless you have to throw up afterwards or you know every time you perform a small act of kindness you you feel nauseous that would be hell that would be you know that's horrific i wouldn't want to live in that world so luckily we live in a world where where yeah acting with compassion and altruism actually feels good it, it tells us something very fundamental about our nature that it feels good right it shows us that this is what we're meant to do um and um, if you look, if you look at the opposite, you know the act of killing. We know that if you um, recruit soldiers and you send them into a war, um, very often after they've killed someone, they come back with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very strange, right? If we're natural-born killers, if we're killer apes, then why would we, you know, become traumatized just if we kill someone else? You know, it should be should be fine. If there was some, maybe should even be some evolutionary advantage, but that's not the case because we're not like that. You know, it's really not within our nature. We've evolved to be friendly, which is very different. That doesn't mean that in certain circumstances, humans uh, cannot be cruel, right? Actually, in some ways, we're one of the cruelest animals in the whole animal kingdom. Um, but that's not our, our natural inclination, our natural behavior. It's the, it's the result of very specific contextual and historical circumstances um of, and you need a very layered explanation of how that can happen and that's why you have to always write long books when you, when you start talking about it but um it's it's not like a uh, how do you say that a pure expression of our nature because we've gone tra often become traumatized when we do it also studies show that something like 75 or 80 percent of the guys who go to war people that go to war can't fire the weapon it's only a few and they have to be detached and back in the day with the bayonets no one used them because we're not designed to kill another human being and that's kind of why you have to be deprogrammed your head shaved and beaten down and you know literally brainwashed especially nowadays because you're going to go over somewhere to kill people 
for no reason, basically to steal their resources or their oil. I love what uh, Muhammad Ali once said that he didn't want to fight the Vietnamese because he had no quarrel with the Viet Cong and they had never called him nigger or told him he couldn't die, eat in a diner. You know, and of course they had to demonize him. He was right. Uh, another peaceful person. Uh, Rucker, I'm curious, are you a dad or do you have any kids? Well, I'll be in uh, two months. So uh... <laughs> I had a sixth sense. How has that changed your view? Or is it too soon to tell? I'd be freaked out. I guess it's it's too soon to tell. So uh, the uh, what is it? How do you say that in English? The expectancy date is at the end of July. And uh, thanks. Um, I'm I'm not really sure yet. I mean, uh, I I know I'm 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 very much looking forward to it. And um, I don't know. I'm just very very grateful that I mean I I can even experience all of this. Um, and in a way, I've always. I don't know. It's 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 just some, something that I'm really really curious about. Some of my friends joke that you know our kid is going to be like my grand ideological project that I'll test on all my theories on, uh, but I promise it won't be like that. Maybe I just have to revoke all my ideas and say, well, actually, I was wrong. People are selfish and monstrous after all. <laughs> I, I discovered that as a dad. No, we'll see. When he's two years old, you will believe that for from about two to four, <laughs> but or she. I wonder, I think it probably won't be real until you start to hold the baby. I have a feeling it'll have a, it'll have a radical grounding, beautiful effect on just the way you actualize these beautiful theories of what you've been able to write about. And then how you suddenly, you've made an investment in the future of the race and in the future in the planet. Suddenly you're a stakeholder because right now, if you got wiped away, you know, you'd either go to oblivion or back to the ocean, whatever metaphor we're going to use. And so what? But now there is going to be a breathing being uh, that you're responsible for and have brought in who it does matter what climate change looks like or equality or, or immigration or violence. That's going to be profound. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like that. Although I would also say that, I mean, for people who can't have children, um, it's not that they don't care about climate change, right? It's not that they don't care about our grandchildren and um in that in that way i like the view of we're all connected to something bigger right it's just that yeah it makes it very explicit once you become a mother or or a father um i'm also well worried is not the right word but i sometimes also think about how having a kid can actually make you more conservative or maybe even a little bit more selfish right if you if you study the lives of some of the great reformers in history um, you know, the people who really made the difference and who lived a tough life, right? Who had to make the sacrifices. Well, often their kids suffered as well. Think of, you know, Martin Luther King, obviously, Nelson Mandela. Um, very often, I mean, their private life suffered, right? And uh, I just finished a short essay. It's only been published in Dutch about the psychology of resistance fighters, resistance heroes, during the Second World War. And I focus specifically on the Dutch situation. So in the Netherlands, more than 70% of the Jews were taken away and murdered. And there was only a small percentage of the population, around one, maybe 2%, um, who joined the resistance early on and who helped Jews to hide. Um, and so in, in the essay, I asked the question, what was different you know, about them? What was, was there something in their psychology, something in their upbringing? Um, 
And we discover, well, the first thing you discover actually is that um, it's very hard to say anything about it because it seems to be a very diverse bunch of people. If you go to, um, you know, some kind of ceremony where they get their, you know, medals and recognition for doing the, the, the right thing, you, you know, it feels like stepping into, um, uh, into the train, right? It's very, it seems to be a random selection for the population. But th there are some things that come out of the, um, the research. So there seems to be something in their upbringing um, very much, uh, about honesty. The parents very much emphasized the importance of honesty, not obedience, but honesty. Um, and it, it was very much about sort of, uh, developing your own moral compass, which is by the way, I think very much the opposite of how parents, um, bring up their kids today. So today, especially, if, you know, privileged parents are obsessed with, you know, making sure their kids get the right grades go to mu music class, go to sports, whatever, you know, uh, there's, there's one study that shows that um, sort of the, how do you say that the internal motivation or the intrinsic motivation of kids that they just, just want to do something because they're interested in it uh, has gone down a lot in the past couple of decades. So that's not good news. Uh, I, we're not really raising our kids to be resistance heroes, which is by the way, I think, wouldn't that be an interesting uh, book about raising your kids, right? We're all obsessed with raising mindful and happy and successful kids. Why not write a book about how to make, how to raise a resistance hero or something like that? Anyway, um, the main figure in, in, in the essay that I wrote about was a guy named Arnold Dowis. And um, he was extraordinary. He was like a super spreader of the resistance virus. And he basically well, not really inspired, but basically pushed a lot of people into the resistance as well and said, well, you gotta, you got to participate. you got to do this. And what is so interesting about him is that in almost every respect, he was the opposite of the uh, playful, friendly, happy, uh, you know, human uh, archetypal model that I sketch in my book, Humankind. You know, he was a total pain in the ass. He was angry a lot. He always ended up in fights. Um, after the war, he moved to South Africa, where he, in just nine years, had to move five, 15 times because he always had fights with his neighbors. Um, he had three daughters who, uh, I don't know, also had a very difficult childhood. They, you know, they were uh, never allowed to, to play too much, Didn't, were not allowed to go to school parties or anything, always had to listen to his, him preaching about this or that. But it was this guy, an impossible guy, who was one of the biggest heroes in the Netherlands in the war, during the World War. Before the war, he was a total failure. No job, um, no, no wife. He, he actually tracked, uh, traveled around the United States sort of as a, as a beggar uh, and then was kicked out of the country as a crazy communist right, in the 1930s. And then just before the war, he returned. And then he did the thing that no one else could or almost no one else could. Right. So he started saying to Jews in Amsterdam, you got to get out of here. You got to flee. Go to the east in the Netherlands. I've got an address for you. That was a lie. He didn't have those addresses. Then he picked up the Jews in, in the east of the Netherlands at the train station and he brought them to to addresses, you know, in the neighborhood. And he said, look, I've got two or three Jews here and they really need a place to, to hide. And people said, no, 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 we can't do that. And he said, well, I'm leaving now. So good luck. And that's how he did it. It's extraordinary. Like around 350 people were saved by him. And um, I'm not saying that obviously there's a huge amount of diversity in, in, in stories if you if you study resistance during the Second World War. But this sort of 
I don't know, stubbornness or people who um, are not successful in normal times can, can do what's necessary in, in abnormal times. I think that's really fascinating. And it has made me think more about, also about my book, because uh, it's now two years ago that I published it in Dutch. And so you start to see some of its weaknesses. And I think this is one of those weaknesses is that, yes, we've evolved to be friendly, but sometimes that's exactly the problem. And what we need to do, especially when times get tough, is to maybe try and make things a little bit more difficult for ourselves. What you always show in your book and everything I've done with this show and how I've lived is every time you think you have something figured out, there are contradictions, paradoxes, or exceptions to the rules, right? You can never, almost ever say always and never. And that a healthy organism is fluid and balanced and, you know, you can't lay flowers for Nazi tanks, right? And then there are other times peace and nonviolence works better and you have to be able to do both. That's a beautiful story you told about the guy too. To me, I'm always amazed at these beings mm -hmm. who risk their own lives for total strangers or for the greater good and, and often are killed, you know, and that that's just who they are. And it's, they're common stories. It's not like it happened once in the last couple, 1500 years. It's all over the time, you know, all the, whether it's Schindler, but I mean, and these are just the ones we know about. You see it every day. I always keep an eye out for kindness, just little human kindnesses. And every time I see it, I feel my heart warm because I'm also bombarded by a bunch of things that I feel like that I live in a barbarian zone, you know, just because. In the old days, we didn't have 24-hour media or Twitter, or we could find out about every cyclone or fire or genocide. Our brains are not designed for that either. So it's, it's overwhelming. It's what Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist, called, uh, calls elevation. So our brains are hardwired to, um, I don't know, to, to feel elevated when we see someone else perform a small act of, act of kindness. And then we're inspired and we want to do the same thing. I mean, isn't that, isn't that just totally great and fascinating about human psychology? And in, in one of his papers, Jonathan Haidt tells, tells the story of someone who sees a friend. Uh, well, they're actually sitting in a bus. And then that person says, oh, can, can you stop for a while? Because I, I need to help this person there. And so he, he runs out of the bus and then helps an old lady shoveling to shovel snow. You know, it's just a small act of kindness. But that person is like, is happy all day and just wants to sing and to help other people, right? Um, it's a fascinating aspect of, of, of human psychology that when you perform this one small act of kindness, it's like throwing a pebble in the pond, right? And you get ripples all over. Uh, I think that's the way we should look at our behavior. We are not islands, but we are part of something bigger, of, as the poet says, of part of the continent. Um, so, um, yes, we influence a lot of people that we'll never even meet. Um, there's some great scientific evidence for this as well, by the way. Uh, if you, for example, take the adoption of solar panels in a neighborhood, and if you look at Google ma Maps, uh, you know, where are the solar panels? They're not randomly distributed over a neighborhood, but they... Uh, they show up in, in clusters, right? So someone decides to get solar panels and then the neighbor looks at those things and like, oh, that's pretty amazing. Are you getting your energy from the sun? Oh, that's, I want to have that as well. And so it spreads, right? Like a virus. Um, and then at some point, there will be people who will start to buy solar panels that you've never even met, right? You've never even heard about them. 
But that's the way you got to look at, it, at your behavior. Every time you perform a small act of kindness, when you're doing something, you know, you're, you're following your own moral compass, you're contributing something to the sanity of the whole organism that we call humanity. You know, and, and, and the same is true for every small act of hate, right? It's, it, uh, it, it does often more damage than, than you can see initially. That's so beautiful. Where could he ever wonder why someone like Jeffrey Bezos, who has 200 billion or more, needs to accumulate more power, doesn't want the Amazon worker to have a break, has to pee in a jar, why they don't just, I see this all the time, like for 12 billion, you could eliminate world hunger. Uh, for 5 billion, the whole world would be literate for this money. I fantasize that somehow I had that money, I would be different, that... Um, you know, I would still keep a selfishly insane 500 million for myself uh, to just, I would live like Caligula, you know, times 10, but the other 230 billion or whatever, I would just, it'd be the most fun I could ever have is just trying experiments. And of course I'd hear things like, Oh, he's, he ruined this over here. He threw 800 million at it didn't work. Who cares? It's all monopoly money. It's all made up. It's all computer digits. It's not even real. But it is real to give someone insulin who needs it or food when they're hungry or clean water. The solar panels you could build. I'd, and instead, this, this, this organism, this parasite is trying to go into space next week. You know, while people are dying, uh, have you ever wondered, like, why are they wired that way? I don't get it, especially when mortality is a 1000% lock for any being that's ever existed. You can't transfer the coupons. Do you think about stuff like that? Yeah, it's a good question. I've got a couple of thoughts on it. So one chapter in the book is a very simple title, How Power Corrupts. Uh, it's what the anarchists already said. The, if you would sum up anarchism in one sentence, it would be most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. Um, and there's, there's a huge amount of scientific evidence we have for that right now. Actually, neurologists have shown that uh, powerful people feel less empathy, right? Um, it's, it's as if they've become disconnected from the rest of humanity, from, from the whole, right? They're like, they've become insulated um, in a way. And it really works like that on a psychological level. Um, the other thing is, um, there's a line from Dostoevsky, the, the, the famous Russian writer. And I'm trying to think what the translation in English would be. It's something like, man, that asshole gets, gets used to everything, right? We get used to everything. Um, so if we make the comparison to think about someone who's living in extreme poverty right now, I don't know, two or three dollars a day. And that person looks at a person in the West, not, not, not Jeff Bezos, but say just me. Right? Looks at Rutger Bregman uh, writing his books about human kindness. Well, he could just look at, I don't know, um, one, my, one holiday of me or one, um, one dinner, you know, when I, when I go out and be like, well, if you give that money to me, you know, that will make a massive difference in my life. Right. So um, people never think of themselves as rich. But especially in countries like the US and the Netherlands, we really are. So if you have a median income here in the Netherlands, I recently did the calculation, you are part of the 3.5% richest in the Netherlands. Um, 
there was this time, obviously, Occupy Wall Street said, we're the 99%. And I saw some of the people in my circle shouting it, we're the 99%. And then I was thinking, well, on a global level, <laughs> you're actually the 1%, you know? Um, so there's this movement that, um, that has arisen in the last 10 to 15 years. It's called effective altruism. And um, I've got quite a few problems with the movement, but the central idea is that we should give more. We should recognize just in what an unusual situation we are, right? That we are historically and, you know, geographically, we are we're incredibly privileged. And uh, that means we have certain obligations. So um, we should give more. And when we give, we should give effectively. So um, there's, there's one famous comparison that they often make is you can uh, help uh, a guide dog, you know, uh, help train a guide dog for blind people here in, in say, the Netherlands or the US, and that costs around $25,000, $30,000. But for the same amount of money, you can cure around 200, 300 people of trachoma, which is a really terrible disease that's very common in, in poor countries. And uh, it makes people blind. And it's, it's very easy to prevent. So for the same amount of money, you can help 200 people. And what they're saying is, it's, it's a challenge to us, right? It's, it's saying, look, wake up. You're in a really unusual situation. And you can close your eyes and say, you know, I only focus on my community, on my family, on my friends, on my kid or whatever. Um, but you're part of something bigger. You're a citizen of this world. Now, you'll never be a saint, right? No one is a saint, but you can push yourself a little bit, right? You can, you can do a little bit better. So I recently became a member of this community called Giving What We Can. Um, they've, got a, they've got a great website as well. And there you can take the giving pledge. It's, it's basically something that you can sign and you say, I promise to, for the rest of my life, to give 10% of my income to uh, effective charities and i promise i'll do good research and see how, how what the most effective are now i'm not saying that that i mean 10 percent. you could say why not 20 percent? but i must admit i was giving much less before that so it's already an improvement and um on average people in the netherlands give around 0.5 percent of their income to charity so i'm already you know that's already a 20-fold increase and um it has really helped me to make it more explicit you know to not rely on my incidental empathy when I see something in the news and I want to donate or when I um, um, meet someone and, and have this short you know, feeling of empathy, like, oh, I really want to help someone. No, I want to, I want to sort of give in cold blood, right? Um, I really want to think about what do I believe? What do I believe my obligations are? And then implement them, put them into practice and force myself to do it. Uh, so every time I do the do the yeah i have to you know fill in the taxes how do you call that in english um every year i always calculate so what's my income been what is 10 percent? and I, and me and my wife decide together on where we're going to donate and maybe it should be 15 percent next year and maybe it should be 20 percent the year after that i don't know but it's uh, trying to move in the right direction what i love is you made it structural and it's a great metaphor because we could do that globally 10 is better than zero. And I like when people always say, well, if Oprah was so great to give all her money away, but that won't do anybody any good. You have to balance a sustainability factor. 10% is solid. We've done, I've done stuff where we've uh, empowered kids, sponsored kids around the planet, different organizations, and just a little goes a long way. And by the way, if everyone just gave a little out of 8 billion folks, 
especially from the top down, we could change everything. So it would change everything. Uh, you've been super generous with your time and hopefully this is just part one because I always, everything you're saying, I have like nine more questions in my head pop up. And then I think, all right, just let's not kill the golden goose, the Dutch goose, you know, especially I know there, the temperature in Copenhagen can get really cold as it gets, not teasing. I know you're in the Netherlands, but. It's really warm here actually right now. How do I, is it open to U.S. tourists? I mean, is there a way to come in under the podcast visa or something? I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to escape the Titanic, man. Get me out. I'm quite sure they make an exception for you. But uh, yeah. I've been saying for years, if you really want to keep Americans out of any country, don't do it with a biological test. Just give an IQ test. And <laughs> I think you would limit 99% of any variants. So I'll let you leave that alone so you don't get in trouble. You can write the nasty letters to me. <laughs> our, audience, <laughs> our audience would probably agree. You've had, you have had such a massive impact. And I know it's a dot in the universe, but you really have... Uh, I'm sure it's caught you by surprise how your message has resonated because, uh, you know, I see your stuff everywhere and you've touched a lot of lives. So you have an influence, you've had an experience, you're just on the beginning of your ascent, in my opinion. Uh, what words would you have, Rucker, for someone maybe younger, 20 years younger than you, me, 30 years younger, the younger crowd that's looking at the uh, landscape up ahead and maybe isn't feeling rather hopeful, but is open the old structures are collapsing. What inspiring words of, uh, for the Gretas and the, and the young Rutgers and who else around the world would you want to share with them? Since this is a global show, it goes out, we have a lot of young people that listen. It's just you, me, and them. What, what words from your heart to them would you say, if given this opportunity? So in my view, most real significant change is generational change. There's a saying in science, I think it was Niels Bohr, the physicist, who once said, science progresses one funeral at a time. Right? You just got to wait for the old people to die. <laughs> um, now, I, I wouldn't put it that bluntly because there are a lot of old people with very fresh ideas and very fresh minds, right? And I know quite a lot of young people who you know, intellectually are already dead <laughs> in some respects. But uh, if you then look at the younger generations, you know, people from you know, the millennial generation, but also for Generation Z, I guess that's people born after 1996. What you see is the most highly educated, most ethnically diverse, most progressive generation this world has ever seen. And then some people believe that as this generation will grow old and, you know, have kids <laughs> uh, like me or, or, you know, they basically grow up and have jobs and mortgages that they will become more cynical or pessimistic or conservative or whatever. There's actually very limited evidence for that. There's very limited evidence if you study the sociology of this. There's a huge amount of evidence that people's views, sort of their political views, how they look at the world, what they think their responsibilities are, are mainly shaped in their teens and 20s. That's really when it happened. It happens. So that's what that would be my message to me, you know, if I could talk to myself 10 years ago, is just realize how significant sort of the choices you'll make today are in the long run um, because it's very difficult to change the course of your life when you're already 30 or 40 years old right and you have the mortgage and you have you have the house that you uh, you know it's difficult to afford and you have you know made all, all the decisions about your career already but if you haven't yet the world is lying at your feet and just 
think, uh, not just on an intuitive level, but also on a quite practical and rational level. How do I spend my life, my one life on this planet? When will I be happy or when will I be satisfied uh, when I lie on my deathbed and think, well, this was a really worthwhile, worthwhile life to live? Um, I think it's really good to start asking that question, you know, from an early age, uh, actually. It maybe sound a little bit morbid, like, right, that you tell teenagers and people who are, who are in their 20s to start thinking about death. <laughs> but in the end, that's what life is about. It's, it's, I, I, that's the way I see it, at least. It's not about happiness or mindfulness or success or whatever. It's about meaning. We all yearn to live a meaningful life. And uh, it's very good to start asking that question as early as possible. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.